This episode is brought to you by the Sexton Single Malt Irish Whiskey, the best-selling Irish single malt in the U.S. The Sexton is an unexpected modern malt for the everyman, rich in hue, approachable in taste, and memorable in character. Learn more at thesexton.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, HRN's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating Pride. We speak to the bakers who created a custom wedding cake for Charlie Craig and David Mullins, the couple behind the Masterpiece Cake Shop Supreme Court case. We felt that what happened to Charlie and David was an absolute injustice. Kat Johnson addresses the controversy surrounding Anthony Porosky, Queer Eye's food and wine expert. Many viewers thought these recipes were unsophisticated. And finally, Hannah Forden speaks with nutrition educator Leah Kurtz about the relationship between veganism and queer identity. It's an interesting way in which food can challenge invisible value systems even greater than sexuality does. Listen to Meat and Three, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E this week, and celebrate Pride with HRN. Available on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and your favorite listening apps. You heard the noise they make, but let me introduce my new Rocket 88. Yes, it's great. Just one. All right. You're listening to the main course, OG. I am one of your hosts, Patrick Martins. It's June 14th. That was Rocket 88, credited as the first ever rock and roll song ever recorded. We, in turn, are the first ever show to record on Heritage Radio Network back in 2009. And that was the first song ever played on Heritage Radio Network. That song was the first sound ever. So we are very excited today, not only because it's Flag Day, but also because the largest event in the world is about to start today, the World Cup. So... Go USA. Mexico and Germany play today. I think Russia's in the first game, but most important, and this is for Vitor Hirsch. This is golf, right? The World Cup is golf? Golf, yes. It's it's golf, but with no club. Um, Wait a second. What's that horn? I want to hear the... What's that horn they play at World Cup games? (laughs) No, it's called like a kazoo or something. What's it called? I think Vulazela. Vulazela. I want to hear... If you can pull up a Vulazela. Vitor was all over that. Vitor is from Brazil. My family's from Brazil. Brazil plays Switzerland this Saturday, so we're very excited. Brazil is everyone's either favorite country or second favorite country. No one hates Brazil, except maybe Argentina, but we're very excited about that. I'm in studio today with Emily Pearson, who's our point guard today, Catherine Greeley, the vice president of Heritage Foods USA, Mike Edison, author of High Ta- uh, author of I Have Fun Everywhere I Go, former editor of High Times, Brandon Hoy, visionary and founder of Roberta's and uh, opening restaurants around the world. Me, Patrick, and we have two very special guests, Frank Reese of the Good Shepherd Institute and Daniel Sharp, the chef and visionary behind the six soon-to-be-seven meatball shops, uh, one of the most interesting restaurant concepts ever. So uh, 
without further ado, I'll throw it to Emily Pearson to tell us what we're talking about today. Thanks, Patrick. Uh, good morning, everyone. Today we're going to be talking about pot. <clears throat> Excuse me, pot. Dennis Rodman, North Korea, topsoil, the film Eating Animals, and meatballs, of course. Is that North Korean topsoil? Maybe. Only Korean North. I'm going to have to pull up a stat really fast about that, but yes. Uh, we also have a pop question for our crew, and as always, we don't tell our panelists the exact details of each topic, so we'll see how everyone performs this morning. Uh, to start, we'll get everyone into the, our segment, The Weekly Base. Our first article is from The Verge. Uh, the North Korean summit this week with U.S. President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un had an extra visitor hyping up a marijuana-focused cryptocurrency. Retired pro basketball player Dennis Rodman arrived in Singapore on Monday, June 11th, wearing a T-shirt to rep the virtual currency potcoin. Potcoin was released through GitHub in 2014 by three entrepreneurs in Montreal. Its trade volume over the last 24 hours has reached $1.1 million. But it's not the only coin dedicated to marijuana. There's also Dopecoin, Hempcoin, Cannabis Coin, and a host of other smaller cryptos. Mike, what coin are you trading your pot on these days? Well, I eat potcoin. I'm just looking for an edible. So <laughs> I've been eating it with no tangible result, unfortunately. That's how the fact was actually Mike's stomach. I liked it. I thought it was like one of those coins you get at Hanukkah, you know, the chocolate gelt. Um, I don't really understand the whole cryptocurrency thing. I'm not ashamed to say that I don't really understand blockchain entirely. I do get it's a peer-to-peer digital currency. It's supposed to keep you off the grid. But honestly, like I keep, I give my popular cash, so I don't really know what the point of having a <laughs> cryptocurrency is for my drug dealer, for something that's basically, well... It's borderline legal now. We're moving towards it. But um, in my house, I keep cash. I also keep gold because I don't know what pot coin is going to do for me. Like when the apocalypse really comes and I need some money to get on the spaceship to escape, I think like my Krugerrand is going to go a lot farther than any Bitcoin. Mike and I actually share a hiding space for our for our loot, which is kind of odd because it makes it very difficult to know who's is who's. So I'm sure when we have to get on that spaceship, there's going to be some like uh, some probably some backstabbing, right? Like you, you, I'm, I'm sure you also have like a straight blade hidden somewhere to like make sure that I don't steal all your loot, right? I, I keep it next to the bong where it should be. Well, I think Dennis Rodman should be thought of, but considered for Secretary of State. He's a great rebounder. Uh, He's emotional, kind of, he wears his uh, emotions on his sleeve, you know. So, I mean, you want a good communicator, someone who's not afraid to cry. He gets along with world leaders. He might get them stoned, which should make them more peaceful. Was he he the worm? Yeah, he was the worm. Yeah. Yeah, and he's a great coalition builder. He gets all these former NBA players like Kenny Anderson and all that to travel around the world. I bet he knows a lot about topsoil. Do you think that's the a big word? <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's true. Well, what do you think, Catherine? Uh, what do you think? Uh, do you trade in choco currency or crypto <laughs> pot currency? I have not gotten into uh, pot currency yet, no. But I uh, will say it. It was interesting to me. We've come a long way it was since the the Silk Road, the first modern darknet market, where um, you know you could buy illegal drugs using Bitcoin. Um, they threw that guy away for a long time, boy. <laughs> <laughs> they threw the book at him. But now the they're, Road dude. But now they're advertising it with, uh, you know, the president. 
Well, you know, think about think about pot is it's going it's going to become legal. It's virtually legal now, and um, state by state, it's turning that way. Even the even the president went against the DOJ by saying we're going to let the states decide. There's just too much money involved in it, and the Colorado model works. And the states in the Pacific Northwest and California who are selling weed recreationally. It, it's it's going to turn very quickly. Um, you know, there's a there's a porn coin too. Oh, really? Which is kind of a big thing. You should try pork coin. I recommend pork coin. Yeah. Pork coin. Do you this need is our special for, guest, Daniel Sharp. Do you need a coin for everything you need to buy out there? Is that what it's moving to? It's like every coin is going to be specific to what you need? I actually think people should be valued by coins, like how good they are in the world. So I would have high value because I so trade kind of like Mario breeds. Kart. Right, like yeah. the faster you go, the more coins you get. Isn't that how Mario Kart works? Yes, <laughs> and you say I have a human value of X amount because I do really good. Whereas Goldman Sachs people would rate very high on money, but very low on what are they actually doing moral. to help the world? Yeah, moral. I'd like a moral currency to go. Catherine, you would be very high. Mike, basically, you want to be God, in other words. No, I. <laughs> I wouldn't be the one to administer it. There would need to be a committee. Mike Edison would be very high, too. <laughs> but at some point, you got to cash this in. So what do you get? What do you get? Copy of the home game and some luggage. Respect. Dennis you're, Rodman. You're you just get Dennis Rodman. That's just all we're Rodman. I do like that Dennis Rodman is uh, uh, playing a major role in one of the tensest zones in the world. I think that's great. No, and believe it or not, he finds himself to be a, a key player in this and he really is. believes it. I mean, he there in the article, it talks about the fact that he thinks he should be in the top three picked for the next Nobel Peace Prize. I so. actually don't disagree. I mean, and plus, what a great guy to have. He's a happy, fun guy who's friends with all these NBA players. I'd much rather him than who is the Secretary and of State And also now. a crazy drug addict, which is totally... <laughs> He's, he's definitely I mean, spent a lot of time in North Korea, and I think that's because they let him do some real bad things. Oh, really? Right. <laughs> I see. I, think I don't. Uh, what else is the appeal? Like you're like, oh, okay. They, you know, Dennis Rodman. They roll out the red carpet, and they're like, hmm, you're freaking. What do you like? <laughs> I think Brandon should be nominated. I want to nominate Brandon. But really, all I'm saying is give pizza a chance. Get pizza a chance. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. So our next story is uh, out of New York and Berkeley via Instagram. Alice Waters uh, posted a, a wonderful Instagram the other day. She wrote about an event last Friday and said, We had a party at Panisse for Frank Reese, a remarkable heritage breed poultry rancher from Kansas. Our chefs cooked his duck, turkey, and chicken. Amazing. I have always focused on sustainability, and I forgot all about breed. What a difference in taste. And... Heritage Food sells his birds. She also went on to say, if you remember, that I, she literally said this, and we have witnesses. She said, our job at Chez Panisse is to deliver the best ingredients to our customers, and we have not been doing that for poultry because we have not been serving Frank's birds. His birds are the best. She said that to the whole crowd. I mean, higher compliment than that yeah, it really doesn't exist. No, it was fantastic to hear her say that. I just forgot to hit record, was all. Uh, anyway, Frank Reese himself is in town uh, as we speak, promoting the New York premiere of Eating Animals at the IFC Center, and we'll be walking the red carpet tonight with film producer Natalie Portman and director Christopher Quinn. I believe we have Frank on the line. Frank, are you there? I am here. Good morning. Good morning. We're so happy to have you on the line. Thanks for taking a few minutes away from, I think, your press touring today a bit. Um, yeah. you enjoy, are you having fun? Right now I'm resting from the trip. 
Good. Awesome. So first question for you is, what do you most hope this film will educate the public about from your perspective and your life work? And what would you like as the takeaway? I think the importance of biodiversity, um, that to remember that the, the mass amount of poultry that's being raised worldwide comes out of a monoculture. And hopefully people will see in the film that my work is about saving endangered poultry and bringing back biodiversity, which also then brings back many other issues. Uh, hopefully they'll see the contrast between my type of farming and what they call industrial or factory farming, um, and that poultry should be something beautiful both externally and good for the environment as well. Well, can you give us that line, Frank, that you sometimes say about Amish, free range, the Whole Foods birds, antibiotic free, farmer market birds, they all have something in common, right? Well, yes. I mean, I always tell people, I don't care if you're, if you call it organic, free range, all natural, Amish raised, whatever you want to call it, there's absolutely genetically no difference between that chicken that you're buying at your local store and maybe a health food store than what is being sold from the industry, whether it's Purdue or Tyson or Pilgrim Pride or whatever. Everybody is raising the very same genetics. And I always tell people, I don't care how well you treat a zebra, you can feed it organic and love it and let it run free and feed it grass and have an all-vegetable diet, it will not become a horse. It is what it is at the moment of its conception. And so no matter how well you treat these industrial genetics, they are what they are at the moment of their conception, at the moment that they hatch. Uh, you can't change that by the environment. You can't change that by what you feed it. Very interesting. And the other part is, is you know, uh, if you come to my farm, you will see something you'll never see at any other farm. And that's old birds, birds that get to live a full life. I have birds that actually die of old age. Um, that's unheard of. Not only are the birds that you buy from me that for eating uh, running free and having a wonderful normal life, but so are the parents, the grandparents, the entire system. So this is a vegan movie. It's been set. I mean, it's listed as a vegan movie, and yet you're a meat producer. So, I mean, what is your contribution? It's to really not a vegan movie. The thing about it is, though, a bunch of the groups that are vegans, that are animal rights people, um, have tried to put their stamp on this. But if you listen closely to the movie, it never tells anybody what to eat. I mean, it obviously can't be a completely vegan movie if I'm a part of it. Uh, they actually show us loading the turkeys onto the truck to go to be processed. Um, it talks a lot about the struggles of being an independent farmer and trying to provide somebody with a better product. Uh, so it's really not a vegan movie. They do talk about alternatives. They do talk about, you know plant-based protein, uh, and I have nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I'm all about free choice. 
You can choose not to eat meat. You can choose to eat meat, but it's, it's you aren't going to change 90% of the people in the world who still continue to have meat as part of their meals occasionally. Um, eating meat and that relationship that we have with domesticated animals goes back thousands of years. And it's infiltrated into our culture, into our religions, into our societies. And you're not going to undo that. We just need to go back to a more natural animal. I, I, uh, I agree. With a talk, better system. What we talk about here, Patrick and I have always been talking about, is not whether we should eat meat. The question whether Americans eat meat has already been answered. We do. It's how we eat it. We should be eating better meat. I think, honestly, Frank, when they let you in this movie, if you'll forgive me, I think they kind of let a fox in the hen house, at least as far as the industrial uh, farming system goes, because it is disgusting. I personally would never buy anything that's at Purdue or Smithfield on it. it, it it's absolutely repulsive, both the genetics and the way the chickens are raised. And what you're doing is something that, yeah, it's existed for... Since the very beginning of agriculture, it works, it's clean, it's humane, it is a little bit more expensive, but it's right in line with what Patrick and Heritage Foods has always said, is we should be eating less meat, we should be eating better meat. And actually, one interesting thing that Frank says is his genetics are actually connected to 5,000 years of agricultural history, whereas 99.9% .9 of the meats we eat in this country and around the world actually are this artificially created, genetically modified uh, poultry and, and meats that started in the 1960s. It's disgusting. Yeah, it's only 60 it's, years it's, of it's history. So, it's so gross. I mean, yeah, it's only recently, latter part of the 20th century, this, agri you know, this sort of agriculture, this sort of industrial commercial you know, military complex, basically, that produces this food, but it's it's horrifying, you know, and, and it is gross. And if that were the only way to get meat, I would stop eating meat. Fortunately, I have an alternative. So how can there we see... There would be no chickens or turkeys in the store today if, if, man's, if the factory farm stopped intervening. All the animals being sold are completely dependent upon their system for reproduction, like everything is artificial. Mm -hmm. the, the turkeys can no longer naturally mate. Um, the chickens are made up of somewhere between 18 and 20 F crops. They're, they're a complete man-made animal mm -hmm. that, that is completely dependent for their existence upon the factory farm system. Mm -hmm. And so, Frank, to, to avoid all of that, you... You hatch all of the animals right on your farm, right? What, yes, all the farm. So, I don't buy anything from anybody. So all of these other, where you say the Amish and all these different um, groups, if you buy birds from them, um, you're buying from the same commodity group. They're all buying from, from one place, right? Yes, they're all buying. Most of them are buying everything from a company called Hubbard, which owns all the genetics in the world. I don't care if they're Freedom Rangers, Slow Growth, Red Bro, Red Rex, whatever you want to call them that a lot of these people are raising. They all come from the same system. Um, you know, none of those birds can reproduce themselves. And by that I mean is, is if you, they can still, nat the chickens can still naturally mate. About 70% of the chickens in, in the world are still produced by natural mating. But it is through multiple mutation lines. <coughs> and so you have to be a factory farm to be able to support that multiple system. 
Well, thank you uh, so much, Frank. I chickens in the backyard and let them breed. You know, you can't do that. To get those chickens to grow at an unnatural rate of two to three hundred times faster than a normal chicken, you have to be able to maintain multiple mutated lines to be able to get that happen, which is brilliant because that's how you control the system. Well, thanks. that way the farmer must always go back to the feed store to get their chickens. Frank, you have to leave everybody uh, wanting a little more. They have to go and see the film, which is uh, Eating a, Animals. A I, great film. It's uh, a limited release coming out this Friday, June 15th, definitely in New York and I believe out in San Francisco. It's AMC, um, right? It's, IFC? It's IFC Films, and you can find out more information on IFC's website. There are a couple panels this weekend on Friday and Saturday with Natalie Portman and Christopher Quinn. So if you're in the New York area, check those out. They are open to the public, and tickets are available online. And then you can hopefully catch the film uh, locally near you after that. Thanks so much, Frank. And if Natalie asks for me, feel free to give her, uh, give her my cell phone number, Frank. I will be sure and do that, Patrick. I promise. Thank you. And we look forward to the red carpet tonight and uh, see you in a few hours. All right. See you all later. I have a feeling if you met Natalie Portman, she'd go all black swan on your ass. <laughs> so let's bring up some of these issues. So veganism. What's your answer, Brandon? You got people coming to your restaurant and asking uh, vegan, uh, do you have vegan pizza? I mean, what is your thoughts about that movement in America? I mean, to each his own. It's not my cup of tea, but I, I, if that's what you want to do. Um, my biggest problem with it is just like this ridiculousness to like make meat food that's not meat, which is like, if you want to be vegan, just eat vegetables. There's plenty of great things out there in the world to eat you the the, the 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 array of vegetables and and things that you could eat if you wanted to be vegan are, are endless and, and and delicious i just don't understand this like need to like make your um all your vegetables look like meat it's like if that's what you want just eat meat mm-hmm. like figure fig, figure out what what why you're doing this but it just you're you're creating a whole um world of um pro- more processed food that just doesn't need to be there mm-hmm. What do you think, Emily? I mean, what do you think of the film? I mean, honestly, I mean, we love Frank, obviously, but... No, I actually had a similar takeaway from from Frank that, you know, I know it's being billed as a somewhat vegan film, um, but as a consumer, you know, separate from my role with Heritage, just as a consumer, it didn't make me necessarily feel badly about my choices as an individual. It's the system and the world in which we live, and big ag really has the the upper hand and is 99% of what we're finding out there. And it's just about educating yourself. So I don't think it's about being vegan or eating meat. It's about finding some balance and understanding where your ingredients or where your breeds come from and that you have a choice in purchasing. Do you think this film changed minds or just reinforced what people already think? I think it may have... I think it reinforced, but it may have gone positively for carnivores um you know even hearing frank speak out in berkeley at the panel after the film screening on friday um he won over the vegans you know you could feel the energy in the room they still had their beliefs they were proud that they had just marked a one girl had just marked her one-year anniversary of being a vegan but his responses his thoughtfulness about how he raises his birds definitely resonated with them so i think it it's a success uh, for everybody, but you know, I don't know that it's changing anyone or polarizing people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think 
perhaps it's giving people an additional um, alternative, you know, introducing Frank. Um, heritage breeds are one of the top trends in um, the, the, the National Restaurant um, Association this year. And, you know, I think breeds are something that are um, become, people are becoming more aware of. He was the most interesting part of the film. I mean, eat them to save them. They're endangered breeds. You know, you can still eat meat and not feel bad about yourself. You know, not everything is right. I mean, yeah, I thought Frank was a really interesting part of the film. Well, we hope everyone will go and see it, and then you can have your own thoughts and, and agree or disagree with us. Um, we have one more article very quickly before our break. This was uh, from the Scientific American. It's being reported that there are only 60 years of topsoil left. Generating three centimeters of topsoil takes a thousand years, and we just can't keep up. Uh, supposedly, intensive farming is to blame. What do you guys think? Damn it, agriculture. I think we just got to get Dennis Rodman in on this problem. <laughs> the worm in there. So now vegetables are the problem, too? Yeah, vegetables. Well, they say that the second agriculture started, uh, the top that was dangerous for the planet. And this guy, Wes Jackson, has actually started the Land Institute in, in Kansas, and he's basically saying agriculture is bad, and we should be eating prairie grasses that grow naturally out of the earth. Oh, my God, delicious. Yeah, good, <laughs> delicious. Alice actually said on Friday, she said, the only problem is they taste terrible. Well, Kernza is what they've named their one hope to make bread out of and all that. Well, if we didn't use topsoil, we didn't rely on it at all, could we eat pizza? I'm just trying to think. I mean, yeah, right? You can still make bread without topsoil and cheese, right? Tomatoes, wheat, right? You need to make tomatoes. I mean, so I, I would say no, probably. It would probably Nothing. be very difficult. No pizza. Hydroponics, no, but substitutes. Yeah. Hydroponics, I believe you can hunter-gather your way to a pizza, right? <laughs> you, yes, yes, yeah, you could. I mean... I, I've not, read about not it. Not many and, pizzas, maybe yeah. like four or five. I think there's some freegans locally that could could do that. <laughs> well, that is pretty crazy to think. What are we going to do with that thin layer of topsoil? It's like the ozone layer and the topsoil layer. These two thin little dwindling. We just have to find a planet that's totally inhabitable. Change all of our ways. Move there. Find a new drug. Right. We definitely need a new drug. <laughs> Kicks keep getting harder to find. Yeah. Man. But, but we saw this coming. I mean, the tipping point was a long time ago. You know, in terms of the environment, we knew we've soiled the nest. We know that the, the ozone is depleted. We know that there is so much, uh, it, it, you know, particulate in the air. We know the water is dirty. The ocean is filled with plastic. I mean, this is not news. I mean, 60 years may seem like a long time, but we've known for a long time that the way American industry, industrial farming, and the petrochemical corporations, et cetera, et cetera, the way this has been going, we've been fucked for a long time. And deregulating things, which seems to be the current administration, and I, I say the current administration, I mean Dennis Rodman, who, right, is, of course. who is one step away from becoming Secretary, Secretary of Commerce. And winner of the Nobel Prize. Ambassador Rodman. Uh, <laughs> you know, is to deregulate everything and let people, you know, dump poison in the river because it's, or, you know, because that's just part of doing business. And I've said it before on the show, that I think anybody who dumps poison in a river should go to jail forever and ever. Unfortunately, that hasn't been the case. And, and here we are. So am I concerned about 60 years of topsoil? I don't know. I'd, I'd like the people in charge to be a little bit concerned as well, to kind of trickle down concern. I mean, of course I am as a human being. I live on the planet. Yeah, no, it's wild. We actually, uh, we need to take a minute for a break. So hear a word from our sponsor.
I'm Souther Teague of Moria Margo and co-host of The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by the Sexton Single Malt Irish Whiskey, a new and unexpected modern malt for the everyman. The whiskey is made from 100% Irish malted barley, triple distilled for smoothness in copper pot stills, and consciously aged for four years in Oloroso Sherry Buds. My favorite part about the Sexton is that sherry influence from those Oloroso Sherry Buds. They're the large sherry uh, barrels that have been used. And then the, uh, the whiskey gets aged in them for four years, giving them this sort of nutty, almost savory quality. Um, the copper pot still makes for extremely smooth finish. Um, I like it in a highball or just neat. Uh, every time I have a sip, I, I want another one. So next time you're gathered with friends or posted up at your favorite bar, reach for The Sexton, the best-selling Irish single malt in North America. You can learn more at thesexton.com. Well, welcome back. Uh, Thanks for joining us. This is the main course OG on Heritage Radio Network, and we're coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Our uh, next segment is what we called the Maillard Reaction. We're going to throw out a pop question. So everyone, with all the talks of celebrities, red carpets, movie premieres, Dennis Rodman, if you could walk the red carpet with one celeb, who would it be? Who would it be? That's a good question. I'm going to go with Carol Burnett. Really? Yeah. Carol Burnett. You'll be her Tim Conway? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Nice. Or Harvey... Harvey uh, Corman? Well, no, I think you, you, you got Harvey, more of a Tim Conway build. I almost said Harvey Kurtzman was the founder of Mad Magazine. But yeah, Tim Conway, yeah. He was yeah. very funny. Well, who do you pick? That's funny that you asked that question. I don't know. I think I came ill prepared. Don't oh, no. know. I was excited to hear what you. I knew you were going to say Natalie Portman. Natalie It'd definitely Portman. be George Clooney, so people could see how much we look alike, <laughs> and you know, accidentally mistake me for him, and then my life would be great. Well, this is a, a food show. I mean, I would, uh, I would pick. Uh, you know, who ate really well in history? I mean, Henry VIII, I think, is credited as the historical figure. Orson Welles. Orson Welles ate yeah. a lot. Who's the, who are the top five food figures in history? The giant gourmands, you make the Robilasian yeah. characters. Caligula-type uh, foodies. Brando well, near the end, right? He was the size of an island. Uh, the detective Nero Wolf, Rex uh, Stout's character, Nero Wolf, who was a gourmand. He was a de- very famous detective, but he was a gourmand. He was very famous sitting around eating. In fact, Rex Stout, uh, the author, claimed that he had over 1,300 different recipes to prepare eggs. Really? So... I- you wouldn't want to stand next to Julia Child? That's Julia. who I was thinking. Yeah? yeah? That was going to be yours? <laughs> Julia Child is cool. She would be a lot of fun, too, I think. <laughs> I think she'd be a hoot with the press. And yeah. then obviously everyone would get look much loaded shorter on, next to her. Get loaded on cooking sherry. It'd be awesome. That I don't know. I think for me, you know, I guess if I were to segue into Bourdain a little bit, uh-huh. I think he's somebody who would have been really I look for me you know I sort of fell into this food world because chefs are celebrities to me mm-hmm. um, and I think that if we're going that angle the who could I walk down the red carpet to you know with um, Bourdain would be pretty cool what about the Swedish chef from the Muppets I always liked him Mike, I was going somewhere serious come on you, you, I'm very serious I so and, and we also we're just like sort of like a meatball segue did you talk to uh, Bourdain? Did you ever meet Bourdain in your trials, uh, travels as a chef? No, just in passing. He's a pretty reserved guy from what I understood. But yeah. yeah, it was amazing to see the outpouring in our industry. Um, you know, he definitely was a hero to many, many, many chefs. And um, it's strange to see such a strong reaction from a pretty um, callous 
group of individuals of, you know, uh, really everybody kind of, he um, touched a lot of areas of our industry. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think also at a time when, you know, he was not the dean of a culinary school. He was not, you know, still in the kitchen running his own restaurant. But through the medium of, of television and his books, he in a way, probably touched even more people um, who had culinary interests or who didn't know that they did. Um, I mean, that's what I've been seeing a lot of outpouring, you know, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, people who never met him but who want to say something because behind closed doors or through reading a book, you know, he touched them in some way and made them feel like this was a world that they wanted to get into. Mm-hmm. Well, originally he just wrote an article for The New Yorker and they published it and he was very surprised and that's what became Kitchen Confidential, which that book really seemed to be what chefs appreciated calling it a pirate ship down there and i actually see a lot of parallels with that book in the movie ratatouille you know really showing what each position was and these are ex-criminals some of them you know and they have burn marks all over their arms as a kind of source of pride and all that well he said it was one of the first cultures that he felt like he belonged in where it felt familiar to him you were allowed to go against the grain um and to find yourself in a kitchen with all of these you know hard-working individuals that came from all different walks of life made sense to him is that a tough group to wrangle as someone before we introduce you officially and all that just it was that a tough group for you to wrangle seven restaurants chefs and there are these weird personalities yeah i mean there's a reason you find yourself in the kitchen and it isn't um you know your highly adept social skills usually <laughs> um, but yeah it's um it's an interesting uh environment and some of the same things that he you know showed a spotlight on were the things that um you know drew a lot of us to the kitchen and as night you know it was a great you know, honor to have somebody shed a light on that and make it cool and sexy. Well, speaking of the kitchen, and that those words came from Daniel Sharp, our guest, uh, our our in studio guest today. Uh, Daniel is an alum of some of our favorite Bay Area restaurants, including Chez Panisse and A16, a California native in 2011, I believe. Did I get that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, Daniel moved to New York to become executive chef of the Meatball Shop. Uh, And since then, Daniel has helped to develop and grow the business to include six locations in New York and another soon-to-be-open location in Washington, D.C. So, Daniel, thanks for being with us today. Glad to be here. Our first question is, uh, Meatball Shop was, or the Meatball Shop, was really the first concept of its kind back in 2009, that being fast casual and the beginning of the wave of meatballs. Now there are many concepts like yours that have followed. How do you remain ahead of the game and current in a sea of copycats? Well, um, you know, it's unsexy as it is. It's just like, um, you know, a lot of work. Um, Funny thing about, you know, the meatball trend and there's been a lot of, um, you know, uh, let's call them admirers, imitators. Um, You know, I guess the one thing that's funny about that is a lot of have, a lot of them have come and go. So it does tell you that like it, while a good idea, it's not that good of an idea that you can just take it, copy it, and run with it. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, it does also come down to, you know, we're trying to thread a needle between uh, quality and price. Um, and and threading a needle is really where what, what it comes down to because you're always, those two things are always pitted against each other. So to try to do the best um, and serve the best quality um, 
food and ingredients you can while doing it in a little relaxed way that um, keeps it affordable for everybody um, is, a, is a challenge and that's kind of what we push for every day. Did you make mistakes coming up with that mis- uh, concept? I mean, are there things that are ridiculous? I mean, one of the things you once told me is that you have all the chefs cooking in the restaurants. It's not like a franchise concept where they're just pushing buttons. Like, Yeah, it's very, uh, you know, as we grow, you know, almost everybody who's grown as quickly as we do will tell you what, what a mistake growing is. Um, you know, growing pains are growing pains. And um, being a, a multi-unit restaurant that still does scratch cooking um, is always is always a challenge. You know, I like to tell people we're we're the same. You know, basically the same formula and model as a steakhouse. You know, you have your proteins. You can choose sauces. You can choose sides. But when you you know, when my cook uh, cuts a piece, you know, at a steakhouse, when a prep cook cuts off a steak, they're getting sixty seventy dollars for that. And, you know, rolling four meatballs in a bowl is nine bucks. So, hmm. um, you know, it's um, <clears throat> it's everything. It's all the work that goes into those kind of um, into that environment. But, you know, at a much uh, more affordable uh, price. Does the meatball shop serve healthy food, would you say? And can you talk about health and the sort of ups and downs of fat or trendy diets and how you adjust for those. Yes, yes, yes. I'd love to talk about this. Um, so I think health is is a really um, broad, undefinable term. But I uh, ultimately, I think health is, you know, a lot of what we've already talked about on this program, where it's what is healthy for us, what is healthy for the planet, what is sustainable. And, you know, I think that... Um, you know, just to bring back the the topic from before, but I think anything that is um, unbalanced um, is is not healthy, and I think health is always a balance. It's not about none of this or no this or you know. It's all about okay, this in moderation, um, well-rounded diets, and you know the freedom and ability to choose and be positive about your choices. Um, we serve a variety of things that are not meat um, b- beyond the meatballs and salads and vegetables. And um, so, you know, for the person who is conscious about what they're eating, we have an offering for, for that person. You can customize and, and make your meal what you want. Um, and the quality of the ingredients um, have integrity and they are, you know, cooked um, in our locations and from scratch. So, you know, I think that for me is health. Uh, I think the restrictive over, like if I'm, you know, I, I look at these fad diets and it's, it's always like, you know, especially in this country, we're just so black and white about our diet. It's like, okay, my, my diet cuts out all of this or all of that. And you're like, "Eh, yeah, like you probably shouldn't just eat cheese, but you don't have to eat no cheese. Like, there is a happy medium there. Um, And, you know, I think historically, you know, if we're talking about diets, like, as soon as we got out of the, got off the, um, you know, um, got above the food chain, then we started to put, like, self, you know, restrictions on us. And what was healthy, you know, used to be, you know, spirituality and and physical health used to be kind of intertwined in a lot Mm -hmm. of what we eat and how we eat as people goes back to that, these ideas of like, you know, it kind of defines us and we have certain expectations for health and, 
you know, I most of most of the diets you see out there are very pseudoscience. You know, they're not really well um, researched, and and you know, there aren't clinical studies that tell you, you know, with any certainty. So I think the one thing that the, it's constant, you're like, hey, moderation, uh, balance, and just um, in informed education of what you're eating too. I think that, you know, a lot of people get ideas in their heads about what we should we'd be eating and they go like full force and and don't really do the research of like well, is this actually good for me or am I just feeding into the buzzword of it? Mm-hmm. It seems like also it's about education as you said cuz mm-hmm. I'm sure you have lots of options on your menu that might already fit the bill for paleo or gluten-free. You can order your meatballs naked or not. You know, it's just about fitting in to understanding what the fad diets might be without yeah, changing your whole whole menu. It's also about, you know, from the consumer point of view, it's funny because your know, people have like they're like, "Oh, I am, you know, gluten-free." But then they come in with the expectation that you're going to make everything on the menu gluten-free. And you're like, "Okay, well, we have a bunch of options. We have a bunch you can do a lot, but um, unfortunately, a lot of times the fad diet, it's like they want the entire world to conform to that, where it's like, okay, we have a gluten-free meatball, mm-hmm. uh, but not all of our meatballs are gluten-free because bread is such an essential component of what makes a meatball a meatball. Like asking us to take away that from everybody just doesn't seem like it's not equitable. So it's like kind of like, hey, you know, um, but if, if you're – if that's what you want, like we have a lot of offerings. It's just not everything mm-hmm. is that. Do you do fat diets, Brandon, personally, or like like have I ever participated in a, a fat diet? diet? I, I actually don't think I've ever done a diet, just in general. Uh-huh. I don't know if I've ever dieted uh-huh. ever. And I just get fat and then I get skinny. <laughs> I don't know how it happens. You just. I would say it's probably like... stress related. Both of them. Yeah, yeah. I get fat because I'm stressed out, and then I get super skinny because I'm stressed out. Do you have that same thing? People are like gluten free. I, I, I and- do. I, I agree. I think I think that the, the people's expectations are always like, I'm on this diet. Everything that's on this menu should 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 conform to this diet that I'm on. And it's like I, I agree with the point. I think I think if you look through the menu, there's we we obviously have a lot of options for you. But like I don't. I'm not gonna make a gluten free pizza. It's it's very it's crazy hard for me it's like a whole new facility i have to i would have to build i'd have to like separate all of our flowers like to do it properly it's 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 really difficult um but but there's plenty of options if you come to roberta's to to be gluten-free we have i mean we love vegetables here we have a large vegetable section and so so there's a lot of things that you can do with any with any kind of diet that you're on so so we're considerate in the process of making menus of like everybody's everybody's different kind of styles of eating, but also you you just can't you can't decide that you want to eat a certain way and then expect to go out to a place and then expect every single thing on a menu to, to be to you because then that's like unfair to all of the other people who eat totally different ways as well. Is there anything you say no to completely? You're just like some some dietary trends out there, and you're just like nope. Um, you have to get up and walk out of my restaurant because there's not one thing. No, I mean, I I don't think there's anything like that unless it's something like, you know, so if somebody tells you they're allergic to salt, which yeah. you're like, no, that's not a thing. <laughs> and there's salt in almost everything that we serve. Yeah. Because David um, Chang, I but, think, once was like, there's meat in everything. Mm-hmm. We do not have a single vegetarian dish on. No, this. I mean, I, I think you know part of what we're our concept was being very inclusive and having a pick and choose menu. Kind of was uh, 
recognize a trend of where people are want to customize. And I think what happened was people forgot how to cook, and now they go out to restaurants. And you know how everybody, I'm sure everybody here, like, opens the fridge, and they have you have that one weird thing that you eat at home. Um, and it's kind of, you know, you're like, oh, that's weird and kind of gross. So I put those things together, but I like it. Now that's translated into the restaurant field where it's like you would know you would be embarrassed to ask the chef to like do this for you. Peanut butter and nuts or what yeah, are you whatever about? it is. You put peanut butter on your pickle late at night. And <laughs> what's like, your secret, like, Daniel? Yeah, what's your yeah, secret right. fridge? No, I'm item. not. Simple, but I think that people now that's a that is the new you know, what's funny is like that's the new way people kind of go out and they treat a restaurant like they want, want they, they treat their kitchen. Mm -hmm. So they want these weird, they want combinations of things or they just want to eat how they want to eat. Um, so yeah, we've never been, uh, we've never been about no, like, you know, like I said, we got options for everybody, but you can't do everything. Can't fit everybody's mm -hmm. diets. And, you know, I think it's really important also for us, you know, get uh, when you're talking about, um, you know, having gluten-free pizza and what that would undertake, it's also realizing that, like, hey, there's a big difference between, you know, making something gluten-free and people are actually celiacs and, and allergic to something. So you don't want to, you don't want to, like, do that and, and promote that you have that because then there is a small portion of the population that, that is susceptible to cross-contamination and it's not just, um, I don't eat this, but, um, and being able to do it right is a big difference between, uh, you know, just making a, 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 a simple offering of it. So what's next for you at the meatball shop? You're going to DC. Well, opening and you soon? guys are speaking on the panel together next Thursday. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna cut it up. We're, I'm uh, doing a little talk at MoFad. We're uh, gonna dive into what makes meatballs um, and specifically focus on some of the meat um, aspect of it, and you know so heritage breeds. And why, Emily, yeah. were you asked to be on the panel? I uh, I was asked to uh, talk about where Daniel. Well, no, I'm I'm interviewing you, but it's yeah. so it's, there is a focus on where his sourcing comes from, where a his meat comes a from. Ton of it shamelessly always comes yeah. back around to heritage. It was like, like, it, it's like, like yeah. every show revolves around what Patrick's doing. No, no, it's no, no, how, no. To get back. It's Patrick's how do we get uh, this back to Patrick? Yeah, right away. No heritage. Do you guys buy a ton of heritage? Uh, t mm -hmm. Literally two thousand pounds a week and. Manage to keep your dishes to nine bucks. 10 yeah, bucks. Well, it's so. Patrick's um, softball hitting uh, batting cage, right? <laughs> well, so anyone who wants to learn more about Daniel yeah. and the meatball shop and sourcing, it's next uh, Thursday, June twenty-first at the Museum of Food and Drink. Mofad. Yeah, come on by. There, there will, will also be, be some samples. Right? Yeah, sample meatballs and sample meats. When does DC open? Uh, no confirmed date yet. This year, though. Oh yeah, very. It's soon. You know, it's just we don't we don't put it out there until we're actually sure that we're gonna make that target. Yeah, I have the Rodman ball. You know, fair the, enough. Fair with enough. The, find the worm in the Rodman ball. No, that's gonna be good, man. DC, that's the center yeah, of the world. Yeah, we're 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 opening this summer in DC, and it's gonna it's really exciting um, for us to be uh, out of New York for the first time and exploring a new market. It's really fun. It. It feels like a lot of the energy of when we first opened, uh, because we're new, everybody's really um, been super welcoming in D.C., and, and um, I've been making trips down there to um, meet with uh, some of our purveyors and, and local partners down there and meet some people, so it's been really positive. Really I think great. they're about ready for a revolution down there. Yeah. 
And uh, Brandon's opening in LA. There's a Roberta's in LA. Who, so we who got. Who said that? I didn't know that was happening. When's oh, that really? Happening? Is that not official? Oh. So something's I, I have, I, It's uh, the first I've heard of it. So, so anyway, there's some big news happening in the restaurant world. So for sure. Anyway, that's it for today. An extra special thank you to our guests, Daniel Sharp and Frank Reese. Uh, thanks for being with us, everyone. And those for those of you listening live, make sure to stick around for Tech Bites at 11. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Spartan design,